Whew. Okay, guys, we're going to be, um, we're, just, we're continuing, we're looking at, at the big picture, kind of the story. We didn't test that yet. We didn't test standing here, but we're going to get it. We're going to make it work. I'm just going to roll with it. Um, we're talking about the big story, the big story of God. And um, we're going to continue looking at, at made new. How are we made new? Wouldn't you guys pray with me? Father, God, I, just, I ask that our hearts would be exposed to you tonight. I, I ask for help that you'd give me the ability to communicate tonight the awesome wonder of your good news. God, I pray that you would give us, give us ears to hear and, and eyes to see and hearts to feel this evening the, the joy that the good news brings, the joy of salvation. Lord, I pray that your love would just rise up to meet us. God, that tonight... Our, our hearts would be yielded to you. Lord, I pray that those who don't, who don't know you, that they would be the first to flee and to run, to put their hope in Jesus. So Lord, I pray that you would expose us to your word and that your word would be like a sword. God, that you'd pierce us, that we would be, we would understand your heart for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to begin and end tonight uh, by telling an event that my missionary friend, Todd Watkins, who lived in Amsterdam for about a decade, witnessed a couple of years ago. He writes, never before have I seen the stark contrast of good and evil as I've seen in Amsterdam. Never have I more strongly felt the presence of evil and sickness as I have here. Never before have I looked in the face of evil as I did yesterday. I don't know if I can describe the experience I had yesterday. I don't think I can paint a clear enough picture of the event, although I will try. Yesterday, four of us stood on a bridge in the red light district in Amsterdam. Like every Tuesday, we were praying for the city and reaching out to drug addicts and dealers. As I was standing on a bridge watching people of all ages and races and class and nationality pass before me, I prayed a simple prayer. Little did I know the answer to my prayer would come so quickly and so clearly. Little did I know the magnitude of what I asked to see. And as I looked upon the many comers and goers, I prayed, God, open my eyes. Let me see the spiritual realms and understand what is happening in this place. If you have the scriptures, go ahead and open them up to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. My goal for this evening is to take Romans 1, 16 and 17, and a little bit of 18 and on, to stir you up, to have you really wrestle with the, what the good news of Jesus really means for you, and to encourage you to run, run to the shelter that he provides and so this semester, we've been looking at the, the big picture of Christianity, the big picture of the story of God. We looked at how you and I were created. We were made. We were made for worship. We were made with dignity. We were made in the image of God. And our lives were designed to reflect back to God the wonder of who he is, the wonder of being in that intimate love relationship with him. We saw how we were completely unmade by sin, how sin shattered everything that God deemed good, how sin just taints and corrupts the world, and how God judged sin 
with death and how our current experience of life is just a far cry from the awesome experience that God intended for it to be. And last time we met, I talked about how we all hope that while our experience may tell us that we may be worthless, we all hope upon hope. We ache for real relationship. We ache for that real relationship that someone would tell us that we are a delight, that we matter, that I'm important, that there's a purpose for us, that God has a purpose in our lives, and that there's more than just pain in this life. And so tonight I want to open up the scriptures and talk about how, how God takes everything that we've experienced all of life and how he makes it new. And God begins to take and and to rework the taint of sin and how God takes death and just says, live. How does he do that? What is our response? Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul writes, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Everyone. Well, what is the gospel? I mean, what is the good news that Jesus came preaching? I mean, what is it? And here's something that every single human being needs to understand, that the salvation that God offers is the most precious reality there is. And there is nothing more beautiful than this, and there is nothing more, more pressing than understanding what Paul is saying and what God is communicating in these two verses alone. Let me illustrate it to you this way, and then let's look at what God is telling us in Scripture. Have you ever gotten in a line for food, like where the food is kind of put out before you in a buffet, and, and there's a big line, and you're behind other people? Has this ever happened to you, right? And so you've got your tray and your plate, or if you've been out to Colorado, you don't use plates. You just slop the food just right on the tray, right? El, Colorado Altiers, well, that's what, that's what they do. I use a plate and a knife, and a fork, right? And so you, you're in line, right? And you've got your train, you're moving down the line, and, and, um, and you're looking at the vegetable medley. And you pass on the vegetable medley. And you look at the soup, and you pass on the soup. You look at the beef tips, and you pass, because you hope that there's something better down the line. And when you get to the something better, you're like tempa with rice, and it's all kind of in this, you know, Barbecue sauce, sugary thing that Americans, I guess, eat. Have you, you guys, Colorado, it's been a while since we've been there. Do you remember Temple with Rice? Okay, you guys know what I'm talking about? Okay, and you're like, dang it, I should have gotten the soup and the vegetable medley. Because the soup looks really good compared to that, the product that's all smothered in with the tempa. Man, the soup looks really good. <laughs> Or you're driving down the highway on a long trip and you need gas and you're hungry and there before you, you see an Arby's. And you're like, I bet in the next 10 miles, there is a McDonald's and a gas station. And so you pass the Arby's and then 10 miles down the road, you're running out of gas and there it is, Birdie's Chicken Shack and Gas, 
We're inside. It's a, it's a pay for your gas, rent your videos, pull a slot machine, trucker stop, where you have to key, get the key to go unlock the bathroom on the outside. You know that kind of place? Where the whole experience can be summed, summed up by the smell. It's something like a cross between deep fried grease and feet. And you're like, Arby's sounds really, really good right now. But with all seriousness, we need to understand what God is offering you in the gospel. It's better than vegetable medley in Arby's. What God is offering in light of the only other choice that exists. This is like the one and only rest stop in the journey of your life. The problem is that the car you're driving is headed straight for a cliff. And most people ignore the exit sign point is you have to understand the bad, the situation that we are in to understand and appreciate the good, appreciate the gift. You have to get a sense of that there is a real, infinite, holy God who will punish, who is punishing it and will punish sin to understand how sin was punished and completely dealt with on the cross. If you're ever to be struck with what God offers in the gospel, you have to know this to understand his mercy. You have to see that when you don't turn back to the one who made you and loves you, that God will give you what is deserving to those who refuse him. Because verses 16 and 17, they only make sense in light of verses 18 through 24. Why do we need the gospel? Why do we need it? Why do we need righteousness? It's for this reason in verses 18 through 24. For, or simply because. We need it because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, having been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exclaimed the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of, about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. You have to understand verses 18 to understand 16 and 17 because God is currently pouring out his wrath upon mankind in the universal experience of death. God's wrath is being poured out right now. And you have to understand what God is offering you through Jesus. That through Jesus, because since the first sin, the refusal to have God as our creator, to have him be God, God has been judging sin and punishing sin. And you know, sin is this this religious word that we throw around, but basically what it means is it just means that you miss the perfection and the mark of what God's called you to be. You don't live up to that, although God wants you to live up to that. And God's wrath will one day be 
be poured out to a degree that will make your heart stop. In the book of Revelation, it says that when Jesus is revealed from heaven, when he comes back to consummate his kingdom and to draw it all the way to conclusion, to make it like it was back in the beginning, when that happens, every single person will know exactly who he is. And some will cry out for the mountains to fall so that the rocks will crush their brains so they do not have to face the wrath of the Lamb. That's what it says. You have to know this. You have to see this to know what God is doing for you in the gospel. You have to understand what God is offering you instead of the inevitable choice that you will choose if you don't choose Him. The wrath of God is coming, so what do I do? What am I to do? What do I do? I just say, I want you to hear this, flee. Run as fast as you can. Flee from the wrath of God. Where should I go? The only place you can go. In verses 16 and 17, and this is where our story picks up. This is all about the love of God just exploding in your heart. And that's what it's about. That's what Romans 16 and 17 is. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You need this. This is where you run to. You, You and I need this. You flee to the only shelter that exists, to the place where our deepest longings and deepest heart's desires are satisfied. You run to the covering to the covering of the cross, the blood of Christ. And so the good news of Jesus, the gospel, that's all it means is means good news is a very peculiar thing. If you're following it, it's a very peculiar thing because in it, God is on the move rescuing people from his wrath. There is no bigger reality I mean, you're sitting in your stats class, you're sitting in your, I don't know, your education classes, and and you're learning a whole lot of things, but there is no bigger reality. Nothing in life is more pressing than what you read in verses 16 and 17. And what makes this so challenging to really get is that you can't see it. You can't touch it. You can't hold it. But you can feel it. You can believe it, and you have to go here daily to clothe yourself and live here. To live here. And if you get it, you'll want it more. You'll want, you'll want this more than anything else in the world because what hangs in the balance is, is not your GPA. It's not, it's not the job that's out there. It's not finding the right guy to have babies with. It is your standing unconditional standing before a holy God. And what's in the balance is eternity. I think that's why Paul makes, he presses and he makes so much time. He makes so much ado about God's grace in the book of Romans. 11 chapters, 11 chapters devoted to, this is how much God loves you in Jesus. Four chapters on, well now here's how you live. 11 chapters telling you that in Christ is total forgiveness. 
In Christ, you're completely forgiven, fully pleasing. In Christ, you have everything you need. In Christ, God is working all things for good. In Christ, God justifies you. In Christ, God enables you to love him and others. In Christ, God is reversing the curse of sin. In Christ, God no longer judges you because he judged Jesus. Everything changes when you get this. So what exactly are we looking at, and why is it so important to understand? There are two significant things here that I want to walk through and discover with you. The first, the first one is, this question, what is the power of God for salvation? What is it? And the second one is, well, how do I get it? What is the power of God for salvation and how do I get it? Or to put it another way, what is the great display of God and what becomes of us in eternity? Because God created us for worship, one day those who have found shelter in the gospel will worship God completely. We'll escape the wrath of God and find our greatest joy in him. And everything you do now to know God and obey him and follow him will be worth it. Will be worth it to escape his wrath. 50, 40 years from now, you won't look back and say, I wish I watched more TV. Or if only I would have dated more people. I wish I would have spent more time in the weight room. The big question in your life will be, will my death be a homecoming or not? And that's what verses 16 and 17 are mainly communicating, the power of God to save you from the wrath of God. But how? See, the book of Romans is is full of this answer as it relates to the historical event of the death of Jesus on a Roman cross. Romans 5, 9, Paul writes, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, we're talking about how does God do it? Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This is simply, in this verse, is simply a restatement of 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 verse 17, Romans 1, 17, that tells us how The power of God works salvation for those who believe. It says that those who believe are justified by his blood. That is the blood that Jesus poured out on the cross. It is faith in Christ that is his blood is a covering. It's a covering for us. It's a just payment for sin. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus died so that God is justified to shelter and save you from his wrath for those who put their faith in him. You see, the power of God is that Jesus bore in himself the penalty that we deserve. That is the ground of salvation. And this salvation is not just, it is not now salvation. It is that. But it is not only that. There is a coming wrath, and from that you will be saved. Paul is thinking here this a future salvation. That is, in the good news of Jesus, we are, we are saved, we are being saved, and we one day will be saved. And in this, so in this cross, we give this great reality that, that in the gospel, God takes those who believe and he hides you in the only shelter there is, Him. So that when his wrath comes to judge the inhabitants of the world, you will escape it. To say it more plainly, God takes you and hides you in himself away from himself. 
That's the gospel. God takes you and he hides you in himself, away from himself. And what he's going to bring, because if you are in Christ, you are his, and the cross means that the payment for sin has been settled. Now, there are two words here, two words here that, that I want to explain and, and have you get and, and have you really understand how God does this. Here's, here's where I'm going to try to make theology come alive, all right? So, like, theology is just, you're going to be like, after this, you're going to be like, I love theology, right? And so here is where theology comes alive. Our final salvation is based on God giving us the righteousness that he demands from us. Our final salvation depends on God giving us the righteousness that he demands from us. Verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. In verse 17, Paul says that it, the gospel, is the righteousness of God for those who believe. That's what you and I need. That is what we are desperate for. We don't walk around going, I need righteousness. I need, we don't walk around with that, but that is our greatest need, to have a right standing before a holy God. Romans 5, 9, Paul says that God justified those who believe. Well, what is this? What what are these words, righteousness and justification? What is it that God does or God gives? What does righteousness and justification mean? And what does it have to do with how God saves you? To understand these two words, you have to know that sin will always be punished. Okay, God will not overlook sin. The consequence for sin, kind of our refusal to live and celebrate God as king, was death. That was the consequence. And God will never excuse it. All right, he'll never overlook it. Because if God were simply just to go, well, I know you're screwed up, but it's okay, I'm just going to overlook that, then he would be unjust. It's like the person who stands at a trial and the judge goes, you murdered this family, but that's okay. That would be unjust. And so God never excuses it. It always will be dealt with. It will always be punished. It will always be taken care of. And not one of us is without sin. Not one of us has obeyed God perfectly. Not one of us can cover over it. Not one of us can get free by ourselves. But the power of God is the righteousness of God that actually saves you. It does the saving. And in saving you, it will save you from the wrath of God. The reality is is that God demands a righteousness from you that you don't have. You don't have the power to free yourself. You can't do it. You can't will yourself to change. You can't heal yourself. You can't give or bring the forgiveness that only God can give you. You can't heal the hurts that you have. I don't have the power to heal the hurts that, that I shared about, that I encountered, and the pain I encountered in the seventh grade. You don't have the ability to heal from the pain of a divorce or the things that you've done. You don't have the ability to change on this level. I mean, sure, we can make our lives about starting some things. You know, I'm going to read the Bible, I'm going to come to this place, or stop doing other things. You can do that. What possible hope do you have to have peace with God and joy in hope and a restored sense of worth and beauty? And so we look to God. We look to the power that God has. And it is summed up in this. 
This is the good news. The news that actually washes out what I said from Macbeth weeks ago, that damn spot, and makes us new. This is the reality that God wants you and I to live in. It is the righteousness of Christ in justification. The righteousness revealed to us in the offering of Christ to justify sinners. A righteous God taking the place of unrighteous people like you and me. So what is it? The righteousness of Christ in justification. What does that actually mean? When we read the word justification in scripture, whenever you come to the word justify or justification in scripture, it's talking about righteousness. Huh? But we don't have a verb form for righteous in English. It would be like righteousification or right, you are righteousified. We don't, we don't speak that way. So we speak of justification, and it involves these two aspects, okay? Because the word, the word um, justification, it, is, it means righteousness. It's, it, in Greek, it's the one word, right? So you got to understand, we split it up to two, but it means one thing, Okay, and it's these two aspects that we need to understand and put together. First, justification is a declaration that there is no more penalty to pay anymore for sin, for our rebellion. Past, present, future, nothing, nothing, nothing for you to pay. Christ paid that sin already justified. This is full forgiveness on an infinite scale. Full forgiveness for an infinite offense, period, because it's complete and full because God paid it in Christ. It is because of Jesus that God can justify those who have faith in him. But if God merely canceled, this is where you have to understand the other aspect of this justification righteousify, okay, this word. If God merely just canceled our sin, then we would, we would be left with this moral neutrality before God. It would just be canceled, and we would have this moral neutrality before God. However, we need a record of righteousness that, before God that accounts for God's heart toward us. This is the, what righteous means. We need a record of perfection that accounts for God's heart toward us. God isn't mechanically involved in salvation. He wants you. Do you hear that? He wants you. He's not just going through the motions so that you're free. He wants you. We need a perfect, stand, a perfect standing before God that accounts for his heart toward us because his heart toward us is, I want you. I love you. I want you. He gave his perfect son whom he loved so that we would have his perfection, his perfection given to us. So justification involves Christ's righteousness his perfect standing in God given to those who believe. So the power of the righteousness of God that is revealed to us, the power of it is the act of God completely and totally forgiving sin because Christ paid the penalty for sin and faced the wrath of his Father on the cross and 
At the same time, God simultaneously giving you a perfect standing before him that accounts for his heart toward us for anyone who has faith in him. For the believer who's in Christ, she's not only forgiven, she's fully pleasing to God. And God can declare us to be just because he gives, he reckons, he gives Christ's righteousness to us. He counts us as righteous. That is what Paul says in Philippians 3, 8 and 9. He says, Indeed, I count everything for the sake of loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For for his sake I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that comes from obeying and doing things, but that which comes from by faith, comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so how we are made new through the power of salvation, which God gives us through the cross, that in Jesus, this is it. We are fully, we are completely forgiven and, and fully pleasing to God. That our record that stands against him has completely been forgiven. And God nailed it to the cross, everything that stood against him, so that we have a right standing before him, and we didn't earn it. We didn't earn it. For the believer, listen, if this describes you, that you've done this at some point, the moment that you said, I believe, that is an instantaneous moment. That God goes, you're forgiven and I, you are fully pleasing to me because of Jesus. Not because of what you've done, but because of Jesus. It happens in an instant. God declares you, goes from guilty to not guilty. And the reason why you're not guilty is because Jesus was guilty. Not for his own sin, but for mine. It's an instantaneous thing, but sometimes it feels like this journey. That, you know that we're on this journey, but know that man, the moment you believe is the moment that God gives you everything you need and starts to fit you and make you and shape you to, to belong and to fit into this coming kingdom. Well, you're going to be blown away. It may feel like a process, but it was an event that happened at some point in time. And guys, all that to say is that this is where you flee. Man, this is where you run to. It is the only place to live completely and fully the way you were intended. You won't hear that mess, this message out there. It's the only place. Completely forgiven, fully pleasing. Completely forgiven, fully pleasing. And so we're made new by the power of God in the gospel to make us his own. And in making us his own, we are being transformed for this coming kingdom so that it will be like it was intended to be in the beginning so that what was ruined will truly be restored. And so what's so radical about the gospel? What's so radical about it is that Paul is not saying, here's some new rules to follow. It's not about achievement. It is by God's power. And many of us think that that we're in no need of forgiveness. We have no real need to flee to the gospel. 
And so we, we live under our law. We, we work maybe to be made right with God. Our false hope becomes maybe in stuff that we do. Maybe it's even in God's name, how we act, how we work, the, being a good person. And sometimes it's not just what we do, it's what we abstain from. And we're trying to get this thing that God wants to give us through other ways. And so, you know, I don't drink and I don't smoke, I don't chew and I don't date, date you know, I don't date girls who do. Can I say that? I, I didn't say that very well. But it's not in what you don't do. And right into these do's and don'ts comes the collision of the gospel. It's this radical relationship that Jesus wants to have with you. And we don't get it because we think. We think we don't need God to save us from anything. Let, let me illustrate this with a story. Dave is a guy I met on an airplane on the way to LT leadership training this last summer. Dave told me he doesn't really believe in God, but he understands that God could be real. He could be real. And if he is, then this is what he hopes. He hopes that should he ever meet him, that God will look at all the good things that he's done in his life and weigh that maybe with all the bad things that he's done in his life. And at the end of the day, his hope is that the good will outweigh the bad. And I said two things to Dave. I only said two things. And it's taken me years. It's honestly taken me years to learn what to say on an airplane because there's a man sitting in 16B who is trapped next to me. And I, and I really shouldn't keep the conversation from being threatening, right? So I've learned a lot of things. So I said two things to Dave in our conversation. I said, Dave, who gets to decide what the good is? I mean, what if your standard of good is not God's? And he kind of curled his lip and he said, you make a good point. I don't think he's ever thought of that. Then I told him a story he never heard. I told, him, I told him this. So one day a man's friend, a, a man's friends carried him on a mat to see Jesus. You see, this man was paralyzed. And coming to the house where Jesus was, they noticed that it was packed. There were people everywhere pushing in to see him. There was no way that they could get their friend inside. You see, they brought their friend to Jesus, and they were not looking for a blessing for their friend. They didn't come looking for Jesus to say some kind words or to tell a joke or to say something from Leviticus. You see, their friend couldn't walk. And they heard that this Jesus, this Jesus guy, he's healed people. This Jesus, he can, he can make our friend walk again. And they were desperate for God's healing power, but there was no way in. So out of their desperation for Jesus to heal their friend, they climbed up on the roof and they removed the tiles of the roof. And while Jesus is talking, what a sight. Here comes this man who's probably like, huh, coming down the roof, landing right in front of him. The scriptures tell us that Jesus saw their faith, the men who carried him, and looking at this man who now has completely interrupted everything, which I'm sure the Lord was fine with, 
completely interrupted everything, goes, man, your sins are forgiven. I looked at Dave. I, I told him, if that was me, if I, if I received that news, you know what I would have said? I would have said, my sins are forgiven. Jesus, my legs don't work. Surely you can see the problem. I can't walk. I want to walk. My sins are forgiven, Jesus. I need, I need to walk. After Jesus forgave the man, the Pharisees were in the corner and they were grumbling about what Jesus said because only God can forgive sins. And Jesus, knowing what was going on in their hearts, said, so that you know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. Turning to the man, he said, get up, take up your mat, and go home. Dave, I said, God through Jesus wants to meet not only all of your felt needs, the man needed to walk, but greater needs, deeper needs that you may not even know exist. And I left him with one thought. Perhaps, Dave, perhaps, every one of us has greater needs than we think, greater needs than we are aware of, and only Jesus can meet them. You see, we live sometimes unaware that there is a great need in our life that we can't fix, we can't make better. So let me tell you the truth. Let me tell you the truth. I am screwed up. My family is screwed up. This church is screwed up. That's reality. And we are desperate for, desperate for God to give us two things that he can only give us that come from the gospel. In forgiving sin, it's total forgiveness, complete forgiveness, and a full, perfect, righteous standing, fully pleasing before God the Father. This is all from the power, this is all from the Father. It is the power of God for salvation. Next question is, well, how do I get it? This is going to be really simple. How do I get it? Paul gives us one word, faith. Did anybody read the sign coming in? I'm not a big fan of church signs, but I thought, huh, how interesting. Anybody read the sign coming in? What did it say? Blind faith is not faith at all. Listen, I love the way John Piper who's a pastor and a theologian, how he describes faith. I think it's a great description. He says, faith is not a blind leap in the dark. Rather, it is the response to a revelation of light. Listen, faith is not a blind leap in the dark. Rather, it is a response to the revelation of light. Faith is not this blind leap like, like well, you know, God, that guy sounds like he's talking to like a bunch of hooey up there, but... I'm going to check my brain at the door, and it's faith. I don't need to think about it. I just need to just jump and go for it. No, not at all. Not at all. Instead, faith is a response to what God is revealing to you. If you've been with us the whole semester, what is God revealing to you? It is a response that says, God, you're true. I mean, Jesus, you are real, and your resurrection was victory over death. It was victory over sin. God, Jesus, you are the only real, true king of glory. I know that now. I believe that. I believe that the death you died, you died for me. 
You know, faith is the one attitude in the heart that does not lean on its own goodness, its own merit, whatever it is that you think you, you do for yourself. Instead, faith leans on the power of God. Faith says, I give up. It says, I need you, Jesus. It cries out, mercy, mercy. I play uncle with my kids. That's a fun game, isn't it? You want to make them cry mercy, right? It's just playtime. But uh, did your parents ever do that to you? Or some, some, some mean sibling? Actually, it's a lot of fun. My kids ask me to do it, okay? Because I make it a lot of fun. But it's us crying mercy. God, mercy, mercy, mercy. God, you have the power to give me mercy. It is the power of God through faith that secures for us present godliness and present godliness and future grace, a future salvation. And all this is based on the past event 2,000 years ago, give or take a few, of a man who was killed on a cross, a righteous man who was killed on a cross and with which the grave could not hold. My friend Todd, he continues his story. He says, I look, as I looked upon the many comers and goers, I prayed, God, open my eyes. Let me see the spiritual realms and understand what is happening in this place. It was only a few minutes later when Andrew approached us. He was looking for Excalibur, a local bar. He was about my age and looked like a normal guy other than the F word on his sweatshirt. We asked Andrew if he lived in the area, and he proceeded to tell us a story. Not just any story, his story and one I will never forget. Two weeks ago, a relationship of his went sour. She was the second person that he ever loved. What better to do than to head to Amsterdam and indulge in every possible sin and forget his pain? His sole mission in Amsterdam, smoke as much crack as he could and sleep with as many prostitutes as possible. As we were conversing, I told him that we're Christians. Oh, I know the New Testament very well, he said, and he did. Andrew proceeded to tell us a dark and disturbing tale. I've rejected God He said, I've not only turned my back on God, but I've made it my aim to hurt him as much as possible. How do you plan on hurting him? We asked. By hurting those he loves. The creatures created in his image. Andrew responded, I know that I'm going to hell and I want to bring as many people as I can. My problem is pride, Andrew continued. I will not bow my knee to God. I refuse to admit my need for salvation. It would be an act of moral cowardice. Andrew began referencing stories of pride in Persian mythology in the book Paradise Lost by John Milton. He began to talk about the devil and his demons. The Bible says there will be a day when all of us will stand before God and every knee will bow. Well, God is going to have to break my knees because I will not bow. He looked at us and he chuckled. You Christians, (laughs) you always talk about winning the battle. You don't get it. We know we've lost. We're not trying to win. We're trying to take as many down with us as we can. We? I said. Who do you mean by we? The legions, the devil and his demons, he replied in a calm manner. We hate you, for you are the loved and we are the forsaken. Andrew continued. Most people in the world, they don't know whom they're serving. They're blind to the spiritual forces. They are slaves to the master of this world. You know, that the devil, you know what the devil wants. He doesn't want you to suffer in the world because when people suffer, they turn to God. He wants you to be distracted. He wants you to have a nice house with a nice income and lots of entertainment, anything that will keep you sedated. So I said, what is it that you don't want people to know about God? 
We don't want people to know that he loves them. His love is dangerous. We want to keep the people blind. The world is fortunate I'm a small man. If I had money and power, I would, hurt, I would hurt a lot of people. I would do tremendous evil. You see these crackheads on the street? I'll give them money, but first I will make them renounce Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I will make them say it out loud. I make them condemn themselves for a euro for a hit of crack. Andrew continued, I had a Christian friend once. He invited me to a Thanksgiving dinner to be nice and because he thought I'd be lonely on my own. What he didn't understand is that I don't get lonely. I am loneliness. My soul is a barren wasteland. I am desolate and dead inside. I feel nothing. And then Andrew proceeded to open up his life to us. I was adopted when I was three. When my adopted parents got me, they found cigarette burns up and down my back. I don't remember anything from the first three years of life. All I know is that enough bad stuff happened to really F me up. In high school, I was tested and diagnosed as a sociopath. I have no remorse or guilt. I have no love for people, only hatred. The only love I felt was with my last girlfriend. It was the first time I felt emotions. I began crying when I watched sad movies, and I was like, what the F is happening to me? I felt myself changing. You know, love changes a person. It's dangerous. Now the relationship is over and I'm back to myself. My heart is dead again. After experiencing all this, I figured there may be a possibility for me to accept God's love, but it would be only possible through another person's love. Andrew continued, there's one thing I fear. What is that? We responded. I fear the demons have influenced my thinking, making me unable to think for myself on these matters. I thought about asking God to rid me of all the demonic influence for a period of 30 days, in order to see if the things I've told you are my thoughts or they're demon-influenced. Why not ask him? I responded. Isn't it worth knowing? I mean, you're talking about spending all of eternity apart from God in hell. Wouldn't you want to know if your thinking was wrong? Yes, I would, Andrew said. Well, you can pray right now and ask him, I said. Okay, he replied. We bowed our heads and Andrew prayed this prayer. Jesus, you know I hate you. You know I want nothing to do with you, but I, I want to ask you if you will listen to me. Remove any demonic influence thinking in my life and give me 30 days of clarity so I can know if these are my thoughts or the thoughts of others. And then Andrew allowed me to pray for him as well. We continued to talk for some time. Why are you in Amsterdam? He said to me. I came here over two years ago to start a church. So you're doing his work. Yeah, I'm his servant. It's too late here, you know. We already own this city. Just look around. We've won here. As I looked around as if my eyes were opened, I saw red lights, sex shops, drug addicts and drug dealers. I saw tourists with cameras. I saw souls in prison, minds blinded, hearts hardened. I saw evil oppressing and hatred stealing people's lives. I saw sickness and devastation. I saw Andrew's reality. I saw a city blinded to the love and truth of God, and it was horrifying. I answered back, yeah, you may be right we're snacking souls out of this hell one at a time. As we finished our conversation, I thanked Andrew for his honesty and not pretending who he was really serving. And I also let him know that by talking to us, he was actually helping to serve the kingdom of God. He replied, I know. I hate that. He always turns evil into good. Andrew said himself, if I were to become a Christian, I'd know that I would be a very powerful servant for God, but I don't think I could bear the remorse I would feel for all the evil I've done. If I would turn to God, I'd have to admit my wrong, and I don't think I could take it. I don't think I'm strong enough to bear it. God is strong enough to bear it. 
he bore it on a cross. Have you considered fleeing to the God who loves you? What keeps you? And if you're here tonight, what keeps you? Don't you know that you'll be received? God does not reject the spent, broken people who come to him with all of their stuff and lay it down in an act of worship. If I could, I would compel you. I'd compel you to flee to him. But all I can, ta- all I can say is that what you'll find is not what you expect. In forgiveness and fully pleasing you'll find yourself. Will you stand with me as we close in prayer? <clears throat> so Father, I just, I just say, Lord, I, I ask, I plead, God, would you open our eyes? Lord, would you let me daily live in the gospel? Let me de- be dependent on you for my life. Lord, I pray that we would be a church that would be risk-taking in our love for other people, that it would be deep and not superficial. And God, my continued prayer here is that tonight, Lord, would every single person be present when you come in the fullness of your glory again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.